0: need to talk about this week. You got one? Great. Okay. There are handouts in the back. Martin has some right there. Jason had a handful here. There are also some up front. Excuse me. You guys are good. Okay. Yeah, if there's some. Keith has extras as well up here. If you want to raise your hand if you don't have one. Not that it's totally unique to have a substantial seven-page handout in this class. Sorry. Um, but it's particularly important this week because uh, there's no way to go over all that, um, that we'd like to. But <clears throat> we'll try, and I've tried to include, even at the end, some questions that... Uh, well, throughout, I've tried to anticipate objections and questions in an attempt to, uh, to answer them from the get-go. So um, we are talking this morning about infant baptism. And uh, let me pray for us. We'll do just a very quick review and then uh, give some preliminary words. Come on in if you'd like to join us. If not, then get. I kid, kind of. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we pray for your grace this morning. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ uh, the hostility has been killed both with you and with one another, we thank you for the peace that we experience now with you and with one another, and we hope and long for the day when that peace will be experienced in all its fullness. Uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, you would bless us this morning as we look at this important issue. We pray for great grace and charity, even as this is a topic that, uh, on which many disagree. And uh, even within this room. And so we pray that you would, um, you would enable us to love one another well, even in the midst of potential disagreement. And we pray that your spirit would uh, lead us into truth and continue to bring your word to life for us and enable us to, uh, to understand your word completely and fully, particularly on this topic. We, uh, we need your grace and your spirit now. We pray that you would send, send your spirit. And we pray through Christ. Amen. Okay, uh, quick review. We're talking about the sacraments. <clears throat> got the Shorter Catechism question and answer number 92 that defines what a sacrament is. talked about that week one. You can listen to the podcast if you'd like to, to hear what we talked about that week. Uh, and then the paragraph of uh, the Confession. These are just helpful definitions of what the sacraments are. Last week we talked some about baptism generally. I have the Confessions paragraph on that. I'll read it quickly. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament. Ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, so right of entrance into the church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. We talked about that week one, and we'll talk about it more today. Of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. Which sacrament is, by Christ's own appointment, to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Okay, um, word of caution, Uh, I mentioned it as we prayed for it here, this is a a particularly sensitive issue, like I need to tell some of you that. (laughs) Um, This is an issue on which uh, people who uh, love Jesus and agree in many other areas of theology differ. Uh, And so, um, a a few words of caution as we enter into this discussion. One is to say that your view of baptism is not a gospel issue, okay? What I mean by that is that this is not a question of Christian orthodoxy. There are orthodox Christians, faithful, Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming, Jesus-loving Christians, who come down on different sides of this issue. So it is not a gospel issue. It's not to say it's not important, it's not to say that we shouldn't discuss it and try and Uh, come to uh, what is the truth of of the matter and what uh, what the Word teaches us about it, but it is to say this is not a question of whether one is a Christian or not. It's also not a membership issue at Fort Worth Prez or any Presbyterian denomination that I'm aware of, um, certainly not in our denomination, uh, you, uh, you do not have to hold to infant baptism in order to be a member at this church. You have to believe in Jesus and trust in Him for your salvation to be a member of this church. That's all. Uh, if you serve to, in order to serve in, in an office of our church as an elder or deacon, you must hold to infant baptism. That's where there is a distinction. Many of you are already aware of that. Again, uh, to repeat what I've already said, we need to extend charity uh, when we have these sorts of discussions. Uh, I've said this before, but the manner in which we hold our theological, theological convictions is nearly as important as the content of those convictions. That might make some of us uncomfortable to state it that strongly, but I think that that's some of even what Darwin was talking about this morning in the sermon in that we could talk about having peace with one another, being reconciled to God, but if our witness as a church uh, cuts against the truth of that statement, then the truth of that statement um, seems a little uncertain to us. And so, in this way, i would just say, um, there, is the, there, is, there are important things that the gospel says to us about how we believe what we believe. How we articulate what we believe. How we interact with those with whom we differ on what we believe. It's not a small thing. It's not because we live in a society that values pluralism and diversity or something. That is a gospel sort of question. How we hold our positions. So, what I want to do is I want to set forward a positive case for why we baptize infants. Uh, This is obviously a case for argument a lot of times, and sometimes, I think unfortunately, we miss out on what the benefits, the positive benefits of infant baptism actually are because we're so caught up in just arguing as to why we should do it. So I want to give some reasons as to why this is important for us as a church and the benefits that it gives to us. Uh, I'm trying to anticipate, like I said, all of the, not all of them, all that I'm aware of, um, the big objections to this. And I'm trying to deal with them throughout, so hopefully we'll save Q&A till the end uh, because uh, I will likely address uh, your, your question or your objection. And, uh, and so we'll see. Maybe not. So we'll, we'll see how we get there. But also we've got a lot to cover. Okay, so why is this so controversial? One of the reasons this is so controversial is that there is no explicit command or explicit example of an infant baptism in the New Testament, okay? Uh, so, but here's the other side. Neither is there an explicit command against baptizing infants. It's not spoken of either way. Uh, here's, here's another issue, though, to think about. So, so, for some, we think, well, then that means we shouldn't do it. Think about this. There is not an explicit command or an example of women taking the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. And yet, obviously, we believe rightly that all Christians should participate in this meal of the supper. And so we're going to talk about what, what really could be described as inferential reasoning. We're going to infer things from the text, and we're going to take a whole Bible approach to this in order to answer this question. It's tempting to think all we need is a proof text. This is actually a bigger, broader argument from the whole of Scripture that I'll be making this morning. And uh, another point about this sort, of, uh, this sort of thinking, this sort of doing theology, is that th- this is how we come to our doctrine of the Trinity. This is how we come to our understanding of the two natures of Christ. It's through inferences in the text, uh, much more so than it is proof-texting particular doctrines. It's not to say it doesn't arise from the text, it's just to say we're not proof-texting. Another point to make before we actually jump into this is that, and I'll be using the term paedo-baptist, that might not be uh, a term you're used to using. Paedo just means child, it means infant. So, I'm going to say paido baptism just a shorthand way of saying that. Uh, paedo-baptists do believe, of course, that the proper practice for adults who come to faith in Christ, uh, that they should be baptized after that profession. Okay, just to make that totally clear. So those who in adulthood profess faith in Christ, they should be baptized after having professed faith in Christ. So the question is whether infant children of one or more professing parents should be baptized. I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to make a case for it. Okay, two big arguments that we're going to look at for infant baptism. And uh, and again, responding to common objections to it as we go, and then we'll circle back at the end with a couple possible objections that might still be lingering. So the first thing uh, that, that we'll look at here is just the general covenantal character of baptism. The, a, a covenant is God's oath-bound promise to His people, and it's the way that He relates to His people throughout the Scriptures. Uh, th- this is very prominent throughout. You've probably heard that term before, that, that, that God's covenant is his, uh, his binding commitment, His oath-bound promise to be God to His people and for them to be His people, for He to be their God and them to be his people. As God initiates these covenantal relationships with his people, or this one covenant that's manifested in these various other covenants throughout the Old Testament, you see this on your sheet, he always accompanies his covenant promises with physical covenant signs and seals. You can even look at the garden with the covenant with Adam, you get this physical sign of the tree of life with Noah, you get the rainbow. With Abraham, you get circumcision. With Moses, you get the Sabbath. With David, you get this royal throne. And so what's significant about that is that all of those physical signs are signs and seals that point to God's covenant promise. They are signs and seals that are to help uh, those who um, are members of this covenant relationship to believe all the more the promise that God has made in uh, in these covenant promises. So, when we use the language of signs and seals, I've got this on your sheet, and we looked at this first week, signs. A sign portrays and communicates to faith that which is signified. Um, Yeah, I need to just keep moving here, because we could continue to talk about these things. A seal, then, is something that authenticates and confirms to faith that which is promised. So, here's the important distinction. These are signs and seals of God's promise— not of the individual's faith in that promise. These are things that are, are, are pointing to confirming, enabling further belief in God's promise, His covenantal promise. This is how God operates with His people. These are the physical signs He's given to that. So examples of where this arises. We'll look at just circumcision briefly. Genesis seventeen eleven. this is where God speaks of the covenant with Abraham and the sign and seal of that covenant. By the way, that language of seal comes from Romans 4 that we'll look at in a moment. Genesis 17, you should be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant, not of Abraham's faith, but of the covenant between me and you. The Romans 4, Paul talking about this, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. It's received by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So it's a confirmation of the reality of God's promise, and that's where that language of seal comes from. So here's how this applies a bit more specifically, then, to the inclusion of children and whole families. So there are physical signs that accompany these covenant promises. Now, every covenant administration, all the way through, from Adam up until, I'm going to argue, for even the New Covenant... Every covenant administration includes the seed or children of believers. They benefit from being members of the covenant. So here's where we see this. Covenant with Adam. This didn't go so well for us, right? Um, So Paul talks about this in Romans 5. The, The covenant made with Adam in the garden was not just with him alone, but with his posterity as well, with his line. That's why we are born... Uh, with uh, We are born as sinners. We are born with the condition of original sin because Adam represented us in this covenant relationship. So I have the quote from Romans 5 there. You can look to that. The, the basic point is that Adam didn't act for himself alone. The covenant was made with him and his descendants. So now, uh, in that covenant, it was that case. Now all of God's redemptive dealings are also covenantal in character. So here's the covenant with Noah. A couple uh, quick quotes from there. Genesis 6, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And then Genesis 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Beneficiaries of this covenant promise. Covenant with Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then verse 10 of that same chapter, This is my covenant. Which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you, every male shall among you shall be circumcised. And then with Moses, tell all the congregations of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. This is in the context of the Passover, we'll deal with that next week. Uh, but just want you to see that children are beneficiaries and are included in this as well. Covenant with David. This is uh, Psalm 89, which is not written by David, but it's about the covenant with David. And this is what's said of that covenant. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heaven, heavens. So, again, included in beneficiaries of the covenant. And now the New Covenant, this is one that we're, we're prone to have objections, and we'll talk specifically about Jeremiah 31 at the end of our time, but I just want to point out here, again, how children are mentioned as beneficiaries, even of this New Covenant promise. We start here with Joel 2, that I have, I do have that on your sheet, don't I, Joel 2? Okay. Uh, th- this is the promise, uh, th- th- this is the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit, which is the pinnacle of ...of the New Covenant, uh, of this of this gift of the New Covenant. Um, there are lots of issues and questions we could ask about this text. Here's what I just want us to see is that it's talking about the fulfillment of the New Covenant. This Joel 2 passage, this promise of fulfillment of the New Covenant... ...was fulfilled at Pentecost in Peter's Sermon, Acts 2, which I have listed below there. And here's what Peter says. He says, "...repent and be, ba- and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins... And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. So, all I want you to see is that children are included in this and mentioned very specifically here, in the same covenantal pattern that they had been to that point. Um, you might think, well, what about the order of the language here? Repent and be baptized. Well, this is this is an objection that you might have. Again, Peter is speaking specifically to adults here. He's addressing adults in this context, but it's also that the order for the Gentiles coming into this, even in the Old Testament, in the covenantal community, for Gentiles to come into Israel and be grafted in, they as adults would repent and then be circumcised. Same pattern as the Old Testament, we see the same thing that, that is uh, described here you your children all who are far off same could be said of circumcision in the old testament very same pattern Jeremiah 32 then this is a this is a, the chapter after that's still uh, where Jeremiah 31 where the uh, very explicit promise of, of the new covenant's mentioned but this is further explaining that promise and notice what's said about children They shall be my people, I will be their God, classic covenant statement. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may turn from me. So the question, if we understand God's covenantal dealings with his people... Uh, is not why would we place the sign and seal of the covenant on them, it would be why would they cease being included in this covenant promise? We would look then for an explicit abrogation of this inclusion of children in, uh, as beneficiaries of the covenant promise. Here's why this makes sense, too, um, more broadly. God is redeeming and restoring all that was broken in the fall. And if you remember how this happens, he's not, and this is, uh, you see what happens in the early chapters of Genesis in 3 and 4 is that families are wrecked from the start. There's animosity immediately between the man and the woman. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, you get a brother murdering a brother. You see, the effects of the fall tear families apart. It makes complete sense then that in God's redemptive, restorative work, that he would restore these relationships, even, you know, this is kind of dovetailing with Darwin's sermon this morning, that that, that he would restore and redeem these relationships, um, even in the way in which he created them in the first place. So it would make sense that God would work along familial lines in that way. So here's a paraphrase from Dr. Ferguson, which, uh, as I footnoted at the beginning, I joked with somebody, I'm kind of channeling Dr. Ferguson right now, without the Scottish accent, was really hurts my cause. Um, here's what he says. The, the, that's precisely the reason why when God makes his covenant, he doesn't make it with isolated, abstractable individuals. He didn't make us this way. He made us for family. God's grace has the idea of restoring that which has been broken by the fall and has a specifically family orientation. So that is the the first argument um, Uh, as to why we should include children as those who still receive the sign and seal of the covenant promise, because all of God's covenantal dealings include children as beneficiaries of the covenant promise. So that's one. Here now is the second one. This will deal with more objections and is a little bit more uh, substantial, but it's really just kind of isolating and focusing in on one covenant in particular that can help our understanding of this. Okay, usually I ask questions in order to get coffee, and uh, not doing that right now. So uh, the second case, second argument, we just say this is an argument from circumcision to baptism. There are multiple points to this argument, uh, and I've got them listed. I don't want to. There's a real danger of getting bogged down here. If at some point you're thinking, "What is he talking about? Where are we?" Look back to these bold statements. There are eight sort of uh, propositions in this in this argument. So uh, he, here's. Here's the first. The covenant God made with Abraham included his descendants. We just saw this uh, in the previous point. Genesis 17 is listed there. We don't need to talk more about it. The sign and seal of the Abrahamic covenant was circumcision, 9 through 11. God said, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations, and every male among you is to be circumcised. Okay, some, and this is where uh, an objection might rise. Okay, I see what you're talking about. Yeah, obviously infants receive the sign of circumcision. But that's just an outward physical covenant with Abraham that has to do with being a part of this national, physical, ethnic Israel, right? The new covenant's different. It's one that has to do with the spiritual realm. This is something that's national, physical, not having to do with the heart and with the spirit as the new covenant does. But, here's my response. To say that, though, is to miss that the heart of the covenantal relationship from the very start throughout the whole of Scripture is one that has been v- intimately spiritual. It's all about communion with God in the most intimate of ways. Has that change developed over time? Has there been further uh, development of that? Absolutely. But it's just as much a part of the uh, covenant with Abraham as it is Uh, as it is now, in terms of it being something that is not just outward, physical, and national. And here's the point point three that gets at that. Circumcision represented the spiritual benefits of the Abrahamic covenant. So the heart of the covenant has always been this communion with God, God saying, I will be your God, you will be my people. That's the heart of it. Circumcision is the sign and seal of that relationship, and as such represents the, the height of that relationship. This is the re- the, the, a relationship of salvation, and so it's never been just a physical sign. It's never been just a national ethnic sign. It's always been a, uh, a sign of this covenant promise that has as its heart this communion with God, and in addition to that, there's always been a call to be circumcised of heart as well. And that's what I have on, on the sheet for you, Deuteronomy 10 and Deuteronomy 30, just two examples. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So there is a call to Abraham and his descendants to believe this promise for which you have received, uh, for which you've received this sign and seal. Constant call to believe this promise. Be circumcised of heart. It's not something that's merely outward. It's not something that's merely ethnic or national. It's something that is a sign and seal of this promise, and the continual call is to believe that promise in order to receive the full benefits of that promise. And this is, again, what what Paul talks about in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. We're not going to look at that right now, although we will in a bit. You can jot that down, Romans 4 and Galatians 3. Here's another point uh, on this front. Uh, The prophets spoke against those who weren't circumcised of heart. This is just another sign to show us that it really is spiritual all the way through. That's why they get called out, because they're not believing the promise. That's why they're exiled. Uh, And so, in other words, it's not just the sign that makes you okay with God in the Old Testament. There was always this element of being right with him, of of, uh, trusting in this promise to which this... um, uh, that circumcision signifies and seals to us. So, huge point. That's a big one. Uh, and it matters uh, in this discussion. So, the fourth point then. The Abrahamic covenant required the circumcision of infant children of covenant members. Uh, you can read that there. The basic point is to say this is not a suggestion. This was a requirement. They were called to do this. And so even in Genesis 17, you can say this is my covenant. That's how closely it's tied to it. So infant males were included in this, and they received the sign and seal of that covenant. That is uh, a statement, probably for the most part, that's not going to have much disagreement from wherever you're coming from. The question then, where there could be some disagreement, is the question of whether there's continuity between this covenant with Abraham and then the new covenant of which we ourselves are a part. You can guess what I'll say. Yes, yes. There is. Okay, and the, first, the, 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 uh, the fifth point of this argument, but the first having to do with the new covenant is this. The new covenant is the expansion and fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. This is where Galatians 3 is huge. So verse 29 of that chapter, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Really, <clears throat> Galatians 3 is really the question of who are the children of Abraham. That, that's the question that Paul's getting at in that chapter. You could also jot down Romans 4. You could look at Matthew 1, chapter 1. But, you will say, here's the objection. But Paul says it's those of faith that are Abraham's offspring. Right? That's the issue. Okay, in response to that, that is true that he's talking about faith here, but that does not entail the exclusion of infants from this promise. Here's why. The presence and requirement of faith is not new to the new covenant. That's why the point about Abraham and the spiritual benefits of circumcision is so important. This is not a new element of this covenant promise. Abraham's described by Paul as the man of faith, as one who believed God. These, are there, these verses are cited as one who believed God and as our father in the faith. So what's new about this, the expansion, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this Abrahamic promise. And so Paul's uh, Paul's division or dichotomy in Galatians is between the Judaizers, on the one hand, who are saying, you must be circumcised plus believing in Jesus in order to be saved. It's between that and those who are then saying, um, believers only need to believe in Jesus. That's Paul's point of argument here, too. So there's nothing that entails infants being excluded from this. We'll talk about the possibility, we can talk more about faith and how that applies to infants at the end. But I want you to see that that there's nothing in here, that that this is the new covenant that is the expansion of and fulfillment of this Abrahamic covenant. So, and, And along these lines, that could help even if you're still feeling a little bit of heartburn about that. Uh, the question is, does the status of children remain the same in the New Covenant as it did in the Abrahamic Covenant? Does the status of children, this covenantal status, remain the same? I've already said that it does in our first argument, but uh, there's a lot more we could say. It's this, the New Covenant evidences continuity with the Abrahamic Covenant in terms of the status of of children, so what I had said at the end of the other argument stands here too. On what basis would we exclude children from the new covenant? So a quote from from actually, I'm not going to read that. I'm going to go straight to these examples of the covenantal status of children. You can go back and read that. Here's what's said of children in the New Testament. Now, um, all I want, all I'm saying here, that the only point of pointing these passages out is to try and show that there is a continuity in covenantal status of children. I'm not saying any of these in isolation proves infant baptism. I'm saying, are children viewed with the same sort of covenantal status in the new covenant that they were in the old? A number of points saying yes. One is Paul addressing children in Colossae to obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. They are are addressed specifically in Colossians. Same thing in Ephesians. Paul says it a little differently. He calls children in Ephesus to obey your parents in the Lord, and then he applies the fifth commandment to them. Um, He also calls them saints at the beginning of the letter. You might say, well, okay, if Paul's addressing them, then they're at least old enough to hear this, right? They're old enough to understand, which um, it still could be quite young. But the question is, are they being treated as covenant members because they've given their own profession of faith or because they are children of professing believers? That's the question that could still remain after those two passages. Uh, I, I'm going to say it, is, uh, it, it can be the latter, based on this next point. Paul says that the status of children is affected by the status of the parent. This is 1 Corinthians 7. Now, this verse is not easy, okay? And I'm not going to answer all the questions about it because I don't know all the answers about this verse. This is very tough. Um, All I want want us to see here before I read this is that the status of children is affected by the status of the parent. That's all we're trying to show here in this continuity with covenantal status. Verse 14, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Some think maybe this wife uh, or the unbelieving spouse was refusing to be baptized. There are all sorts of questions as to what this actually means. Here's how it affects children, though. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Okay, So we've got to say that the status of children, whatever this means, is affected by the status of the parents. That's at least what Paul's saying here. And this language, as I have on your sheet, is is drawing on these Old Testament cleanliness laws of Leviticus so that the status of holy is one in covenantal relationship with God. Okay, and then the continuity of the status of children is seen in how Jesus treated children. Again, not saying that Jesus baptized children, just saying, look at the ongoing covenantal status of children here. Children were brought to be blessed by him. Um, There are three passages from the Synoptic Gospels where this is mentioned. With the passage in Luke, he significantly says that they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And then, a little bit different than in Matthew 19, "...then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven." And he laid his hands on them and went away. What's interesting about Matthew's account of this is that in the other two accounts, in Mark and Luke, children are then said to be examples of the sort of faith that we are to have in this kingdom. It's a childlike faith. Matthew doesn't make that point. That's not what he says. All that he says here in, uh, in speaking of Jesus' words, he says, Let the little children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. That's a strong statement being made there. Uh, so, so you might say, well, wait, doesn't that say too much, though? Is Jesus saying that then all children without qualification uh, for, for to them, to all children, belongs the kingdom of heaven? Uh, is he saying too much? No, he's not, because parents who are, be- who are bringing their children to Jesus are believers in Jesus. Dr. Ferguson says they're bringing their children to Jesus and not to the rabbi. And that's significant. These are believing parents and children of believing parents. Another quick point on this is that, of course, Jesus doesn't baptize anybody. We've got to remember that. And you might say, well, but this is just blessing. This doesn't have anything more to do with that. All we're talking about is covenantal status, and blessing is a deeply covenantal term. If you look back to God's uh, promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, it's bless this, bless, 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 over and over again deeply covenantal language. Another reason why uh, we should view our children as having the same covenantal status. And now Peter, uh, who then echoes the Abrahamic covenant in a sermon at Pentecost, he includes children, we already looked at this, for the promises for you, for your children, for all, all who are far off. This is a, an echo of that Abrahamic promise that was uh, to go to the, um, that all peoples would be blessed through Abraham's seed. So there's that all who are far off element as well. I won't read Murray's, Quote, you can look at that later. So, here's the point. There's no evidence in the New Testament that children should be excluded from the covenant, that there's not ongoing continuity in that. To the contrary, there's actually reason to believe that, based on these passages we've looked at, they were included as beneficiaries of the covenant, just as all other covenants. Okay, so then the question becomes, well, okay, that may be that, but what about this connection between circumcision and baptism? There are some who argue against infant baptism and say, yeah, uh, baptism is not the replacement of or fulfillment of circumcision. I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> uh, baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign and seal of the new covenant. Multiple uh, ways that I'll make the case. One is in Colossians 2. This is a, a, um, this is a passage where there's some debate. I know uh, Piper, John Piper, for one, does not believe this to show it. There are other points that I'll make here. I still think it does uh, show baptism is replacing circumcision. Here's what Paul says. <clears throat> in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, that ultimately points to Jesus' death, is what Paul's talking about right here. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you you were also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. So, a few points about this. One is that the purification from defilement, that circumcision pointed to, is accomplished by Christ in his death. That's the circumcision of Christ mentioned here. And that is represented to us in baptism. Here's a quote from Jack Collins. The circumcision of Christ is the union with Christ on display through baptism. Baptism, then, is the way in which someone enters the people of God in the present era. This is why the Gentile audience of Colossians do not need to go further and become proselytes to Judaism. And then Clowney, we're circumcised by union with Christ and his death, and baptism is the sign of that union. So, that's one point regarding Colossians 2 in particular. Here's another, uh, another take on this that is supportive of baptism replacing circumcision. They're distinct, and this is from Collins as well, they're distinct echoes of household circumcision passages in household baptism passages. So, here's one, household circumcision, Genesis 17. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, the, uh, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Okay, so household baptism. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying household baptisms prove infant baptism, okay? I'm not trying to, I'm not making that case right here, although I do think that household baptisms are much more explainable from an infant baptism, from a paedo-baptist position, rather than a Baptist one, rather than saying that every person in here professed faith. All I'm trying to show here is how baptism has replaced circumcision. So, Acts 16, similarity echoes of the language used. One who heard us uh, talk about Lydia, go to verse 15. After she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you judge me, faithful to the Lord. Okay, look to the next passage, 1 Corinthians 1. It's Paul speaking, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, but on that I did not uh, know whether I baptized anyone else. So, echoes in language between uh, household baptism, household circumcision. Thirdly, baptism is now the right of entrance into the covenant community. This is a bigger, I think, more, uh, this is a bigger, kind of broader argument to make here. Uh, This is what circumcision was very clearly, the right of entrance into the covenant community. Baptism has replaced that. Here's an example of it, 1 1 Corinthians 12. So, we're not looking here for an explicit proof text. We're just looking at how both of these as signs and seals of covenant promises function to their respective covenants in the same way. 1 Corinthians 12, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, and Collins says, Baptism is explicitly said to incorporate someone into the people of God, just as circumcision did in the Old Covenant. So, baptism's the right of entrance into the covenant community. This then the baptism has re- replaced circumcision. So, final point of this argument. Point 8 or H. Infant baptism is a good and necessary consequence derived from scripture. This is based on God's covenantal dealings as we saw in the first case and the second, specifically connected to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay. It is 940, sorry, 1040, and uh, let me look at these remaining objections, because my guess is these would probably be asked anyway, rather than going straight to um, question and answer. You might say, okay, we've talked some about the New Covenant already, but we can talk a bit more about it. What about the language of the New Covenant that says, they shall all know me? What do we do about that? And so, then, from a Baptist perspective, they say it only that the only members of the new covenant are regenerate members. Say regenerate. There, we're talking about those who are numbered among the eternally elect. Only the regenerate may be included in the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 so gives the, this promise of the new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, I'll write it on their hearts, I will be their God, they shall be my people. A few points of response to this right uh, right here. One is that Jeremiah is not talking to a people who have lived faithfully to the terms of the covenant. These are people who have become an uncircumcised people. These are people who bear the sign and seal of the covenant promise that they have refused to believe. He's speaking here to Israel in rebellion. That's different from what would be faithful Israel, okay? So, uh, so, the contrast is between those who have rejected the covenant in the Old Testament and what God's going to do with, as a work of renewal in the New Covenant. Uh, th- this call to have law on their heart is also a part of the Mosaic Covenant as well. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, God calls them to have the law written on their hearts. It shall be on your heart. Deuteronomy 11, uh, you shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. Another point here, that the knowing the Lord uh, described is not one of a subjective state. This is the second point of response. This isn't saying, I will each, each of you know the Lord in a subjective state. What it's saying is that the mode or the way of knowing is now different in the new covenant. Here's how it's different. In the old covenant, the knowledge of God comes to the people of God by means of prophets, priests, and kings. These are, uh, these are mediators of the covenant. In the New Covenant, what's going to happen is what God's saying here. It's coming by means of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why like, there's the comment that you, you won't need teachers anymore in the New Covenant. That would put me out of a job, for one, so I hope that's not true. But uh, the, there's, the, what that means is that there is, this, uh, the, there is a different way of knowing the Lord, mediated by the Spirit and not through these prophets, priests, and kings as there had been prior it's not about each individual knowing the Lord subjectively. It's the mode of knowing or the way of knowing that's different. Also, thirdly, recall Jeremiah 32, 38, 40, above, where, that we talked about this, where children are specifically mentioned in the enumeration or explanation of this new covenant. So, the new covenant's been inaugurated, not consummated. Not all who receive the sign of the new covenant will embrace it in its fullness. Maybe that's your objection. Uh, But I'll say, too, that is true from the Baptist perspective as well. There are many who would profess faith in adulthood, receive that sign and seal of baptism in that, and not persevere to the end and walk away from the faith. Same thing is sadly true of those who are baptized as infants. That's not a problem unique to uh, those who hold to infant baptism. It's a problem, a sad issue, that all Christians have to deal with. So, uh, the new covenant's been inaugurated but not consummated, and we all have to deal with that. It's true for infants and, and adults, um, and so if you really believe that only those who are regenerate, numbered among the eternally elect, should receive this sign and seal of baptism, there are two big issues with that. One, you don't know who that is, and neither do I. Um, We don't know other people's hearts. We can't know with certainty that that person is regenerate. Are there signs and fruit of the gospel in their lives? Sure. Um, We interview people for membership in order to hear their profession of faith and want to know some about the fruit being produced in their lives. Can you know with certainty, sadly, that a person you interview and hear is not going to walk away from the faith in ten years and show themselves to never have been truly, genuinely regenerate? No, we can't know that with certainty. And so the, the other issue then with that is to say, if that's the way we're going to view baptism, then really we should wait until people are on their deathbed to baptize them. <laughs> I don't mean that like snarky. I'm, seriously, if, that's, if we're saying these are the only people that should receive this sign and the only reason that we would ever give them the sign is if we can be with certainty that they are part of the regenerate, then we would wait until they've persevered through the whole of their lives. And you're still not sure. And you're still not sure. That's right. Um. So, okay. Um. So that's a. Um, and some of this comes down to how you view the church as well. Um, desire to have a pure regenerate church um, is not one that um, that I don't think it, it's not attainable. It's this, but this isn't like acquiescing to other things. This is the way God's operated covenantally. There's always this. Sign and seal of God's covenant promise is coming to you with a continual call to believe that promise. And as I said, in both cases, whether as an infant or as an adult, there will be people who don't persevere to the end. And so, the way that the Westminster Confession describes the church is that it's all those who profess faith in Christ and their children. We, we, I would argue, like the New Testament, um, interact with people. Relate to people based on their profession of faith in Jesus. Now, there are ways in which they could show themselves to betray that profession, but that's what we uh, have confidence of, uh, is their profession of faith. So, um, okay, now it's overtime. I did give a substantial, try and give a substantial answer to how does the Bible's strong language about the efficacy of baptism fit with applying the sign and seal to children give three points of response there, and I don't really have many notes written in my notes outside of what I've given you there, so I think my answer is pretty thorough. Um, I would love to talk more with any of you about this, okay? Um, And I seriously am not intending to, like, cut off conversation by conveniently ending after our time. Um, I do think this is worthy of more conversation, but we needed to get through all of this in a substantial way, setting it forward in a... um, in a uh, linear manner, rather than trying to get too off on other tangents. Um, Let me pray for us, and um, we'll end. Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness to us. We thank you that you are the one who initiates relationships with your people. Uh, Father, we know that we, uh, we are those who wander. We would not have had an interest in you, but for your grace coming to us first. And Lord, we thank you for the way that that's beautifully portrayed, even in the baptism of a child, and uh, the helplessness that's portrayed there, and yet the certainty of your promise. And we pray, Lord, that uh, within our church in particular, that all those, uh, not just our children, but are um, the adults, every person that we would be those who continue to believe these beautiful promises that you've given to us, uh, that we would rejoice in all that you've done for us in Christ, and that we would be those who experience the fullness of all these benefits that are received by faith. And we pray this in Christ. Amen.